Hello, everyone. After a dynamic conversation last week with Dr. Jack Cox about trust during unknown times, this week we transitioned from healthcare to another industry that's been impacted by the crisis the practice of law. Today, our guest is Jim Bastian, a fellow UCLA graduate. Jim is a partner in the law firm Shulman, Bastian, Friedman, and Bowie, where he heads the firm's bankruptcy and reorganization practice areas. Jim is also an active member of the board at Mission Hospital Foundation and is the chairman of the board of Lionsheart, a national youth volunteering organization. Now, in this episode, Jim will be sharing some of the challenges and opportunities this COVID-19 crisis has created to organizational culture, productivity, and the practice of law. As usual, our co-host, Fairfield University professor, Dr. Scott Lacey, will use his metacognitive awareness in our conversation by explaining the anthropological aspect to human adaptation and how this crisis is reinforcing the interdependence of the human race. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Scott. Happy to join you guys. Great. Well, we're going to get into some, uh, some heavy issues here, things that you deal with day in and day out. But I thought I'd start our conversation today uh, with something I, I've, I've written in one of my recent articles, and I'll read this to you both. Legacies are born during crises. We discover the leaders that are most respected based upon how well they reacted and how they responded to all the chaos and uncertainty that a crisis brings. But leaders also have a responsibility to uphold the traditions of the organizations that they serve by holding themselves more accountable to actually build on those traditions to further strengthen the organization's culture and the communities of the people that their organizations serve. Now, for leaders, these, are cult these cultures are defining moments that are either strengthening the culture for future legacies or they're awakening leaders to realize the importance of establishing a culture to ensure a legacy platform is in place for the future. Now, Jim, as I read those words, I am certain, knowing you as I do, that you felt that. You know, how, how do you take this moment, you know, to create any sense of unity? around a common purpose that can create new legacies into the future? Um, it's a great question. And I think it's been a challenge right now because um, social distancing, working from home, working remotely, uh, tends to separate people, obviously. And so there's, there are practical and there are maybe more um, emotional 
and mental ways that you can go about addressing this issue. And I think you have to attack it on, on multiple fronts. You can't just deal with one and not the other. Obviously, the practical things, how we're convening right now through Zoom. Uh, Zoom is something literally I knew nothing about 30 days ago, never heard of it. And here I am, and it's become a vital part of my life and my practice. You have family members getting together on Zoom. You have our, our weekly meetings that we used to have in person are, are taking place via Zoom. Um, I've had uh, very intensive meetings among uh, opposing counsel and clients that have taken place on Zoom. Um, and practically speaking, by having a platform like this, it can at least bring you together on some level where you see someone's face, you hear their voice, uh, and it gets you a little bit more of that uh, interpersonal thing. And so that's, that's a practical side of it. But from an emotional perspective or a mental perspective, um, it, it really takes a lot to change your mindset and to remain connected to people. Um, and I think it comes from within of, of a feeling of purpose in what you do every day. Uh, I think it's a commitment to your organization. Uh, you talk about culture. Uh, in our firm, uh, we pride ourselves on having a good firm culture. Um, but with everybody now separated, well, how do we maintain that? I think it's communication. I think it's taking that extra time to reach out to people, uh, ask how they're doing, uh, listening to them either by text or email or even on the phone. Um, and, and as simple as, you know, my partner came up with this, Len Shulman, uh, when we started to realize what the new normal was going to look like, he went through his email and he started typing in a character, uh, AA, and a name populated. And he said, oh, I haven't talked to Aaron in a while. And he sent Aaron an email. Hey, how you doing? Just touching base. And he proceeded for the next 90 minutes to do that all the way through his whole alphabet on his inbox. Whatever populated, he sent an email out, just making a connection. And, and there was no call to action. There was no quid pro quo. There was nothing. It was just a, hey, how you doing? And it was amazing the responses that we got from people who were just like, gosh, I'm glad you reached out and uh, doing great to, we actually got a couple new cases out of it. Hey, I was meaning wow. to call you. <laughs> um, so it's just sort of combining the practical with the emotional, if you will, that can help people stay connected at, at this type of a time. You know, I know Scott has a lot to, to say about connection. Uh, in fact, Scott's made me believe that connection is even more important than food. Scott, what do you say about what Jim just, sh just shared? Um, amen, brother. That's what I have to say to that. Um, yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, some of the discussions that we've been just having all around, you know, both here at Fairfield U, but elsewhere uh, with wonderful people like you, um, is really about this. Where do we, how can we get some traction here? Like there's so much going on. There's so much to take care of. There's so many things to deal with, so many problems to, to, to think about and to work through. Where do we start? Like, is there a place to start? And I think, um, man, it, it's right there in front of us. Jim just said it. Um, it's the connectivity. Um, you know, I just wrote down here that, you know, he talks about the importance of the culture, right? And I, I'd love to hear more about that in a, a minute, Jim, about this culture of your firm and, and why, um, you know, what is it that's healthy about that? How, how might we be able to learn about what you're doing at your firm that might have implications beyond, say, just your firm? But ultimately, you said the culture at a distance is maintained through communication. And while that is what we're doing right now, we have a lot to learn about how to use this type of communication in order to maintain, and I would even add, to rebuild or build culture. Um, so talk to you, do you mind sharing a little bit about what is that culture? What is it that makes the culture of your firm um, something not just that's different or distinguishing from another firm or another group, uh, but, but that actually makes it the core strength, one of the core strengths of you and your crew? 
I think there's a few things. Um, we, we have a diverse group, uh, age, demographics, ethnicity, background, um, and, and not just among our attorneys, but among our staff as well. And we had a real sort of communal approach to our practice. Um, on a weekly basis, we'd get together in our conference room and meet and share about our cases, about things that we were dealing with, regular meetings with our staff to touch base and see how they're doing. Uh, you know, events that we would bring team building. Uh, just in, in October, we had had our, a, a team building event where, you know, you brought in a moderator and we'd work on things together and, and we'd put uh, staff members with attorneys and partners with associates and, and, and mix it up a little bit. And we've always tried to, to do things that would bring people together outside of the day-to-day -day practice so that when we're in the heat of the battle where we face a deadline or we're dealing with a particularly challenging issue, we have an appreciation for people on a different level. Um, you know, this last year, uh, we invited spouses and significant others to participate in our firm retreat, and we brought the entire staff together, um, where we were able to then bring perspectives, not just from the people who are working with us every day, but the people that they live with and have to deal with, so that when they bring their work baggage home, we could hear from them, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What do you perceive that your partner enjoys about their job or not enjoy about their job? And then we try to bring that back into to, to change our policies, procedures, or the way we do business. Um, and so that's how we sort of would operate in the normal world. Now that we're in this environment, um, again, it's, it's maintaining communication with them to make sure that, that everybody's okay. Uh, one of the things we did, as soon as we realized that um, people were going to need to be working remotely and practice social distancing, uh, it was easy for us because our attorneys were all outfitted at home. We have our phones, we have our laptops, we have our home computers but our staff didn't. Uh, we had never outfitted our staff to work remotely. Um, and we've actually heard there's been quite a few law firms that have started to lay off people at the support levels. <laughs> Ironically, those are the people that probably need their jobs the most. Yeah. Um, and so instead of going through a, a process of furloughing the support staff where you wouldn't think they need as much work, we quickly pivoted and got everybody outfitted at home. Uh, we sent our IT people out and we had a couple staff members, they didn't have home computers. So we had to outfit them with a home computer. So now that they can do their job at home, even as a, a legal assistant or a filing clerk, they can work from home now and, and maintain that, that, that part of our firm. So I think that came from the idea that realizing that from the lowest levels of our organization to the highest, everyone has an important role. And if we're going to have a business that's successful, everyone needs to contribute and everyone needs to feel like they're part of it. And so in this new normal, we've, we've adapted to give those people the tools that they can continue to do their job uh, and continue to work. Um, and to this point, knock on wood, we haven't had to lay anybody off and, and we've actually been doing pretty well, all things considered. You know, if, if, as you think about what, uh, what you're saying, Jim, and how you're responding, uh, and maybe it's because I, I know you, uh, but I, I, I'd like the audience, as they continue to listen to you, to see that common thread that you have uh, between being a leader and caring about a community. Because what you just described was how you've been able, as best as you can, because we're still learning, um, right. is to keep a, the culture intact. But you're doing that by looking at them as part of a community that you actually feel responsible for. Right. And I think that's important because, you know, cultures oftentimes, and you could probably predict what I'm going to say in the age of standardization, it's about 
uh, adhering to uh, predetermined and prescribed uh, values, behaviors, and attitudes. But during times of crises, I think people are quick to default to who they really are. This, this is the time where people's individualities are truly at the forefront. I'm sure that you've learned a lot about uh, people, the people that have been part of uh, your firm. Uh, not that you didn't already know them, but you've probably discovered new things about them. And I think, uh, absolutely. That, and I think, and I'll, I'll, I'll ask you to, to share in a moment, but I think that that comes with this trust, uh, the trust that you have, uh, you and your partners have created by treating the firm uh, as a community. And I know you didn't say it that way, but right. that's what you actually re represented in your description. I mean, look, r right now there are communities struggling all over the world. And uh, the communities uh, around us are binding and bonding together by finding creative ways, new different ways that maybe weren't accepted in the past that are very relevant in the present. And it, it kind of reminds me of, not kind of, when we were kids, and that means all of us, what was so apparent in our communities? The garage doors were open. The barbecues were out front or maybe an ice chest with some beverages. And we all used to hang out. Then what happened? The garage doors closed. Nobody talked to each other. People were very isolated. People were very separated by design. I think what we're starting to see is that garage door open again, uh, not necessarily in our communities, though I believe that will start happening uh, again, but we're starting to see it in our, in our workplace where the, the door that's opening is that uh, of ourselves as individuals wanting to help and be there for one another. Uh, so, Jim, please, I, I know you reacted to the statement, but <laughs> what are some things that you've discovered and learned about some of the people on your team? It's, it's kind of comical. The first time we set up our Zoom meeting, um, you know, everyone's sitting and wherever they, they do their thing. And, you know, we have a, a range of people. We've got people that have been with us for a long time. We have younger associates, people who are single, people who are married. <laughs> and one of our associates, we, we, uh, we looked in the background and his apartment was interesting to, to put it mildly. And, and it's like, no, wait, uh, hold on a second, Jim. Was it as cool as Scott's backdrop in his room? No, no, not at all. that. Well, but what you get to realize is you see how people live. And right, right. It was so early in the process. I don't think anybody really was staging and, you know, zoom has that feature where you can put a background on it and everyone was just as they were. So you're seeing people in t-shirts and shorts and messed yeah. up hair and baseball hats and, ponytails and no makeup. Right. I would say that in the last 30 days, we've gotten to know each other on a more intimate level than we had previously ever. Um, just by being able to access their homes. And, and, and I think more than that, it's, um, you know, this sounds cliche, we are in this together and we're all dealing with the same struggles. So in the old days, if you'd have a conference call from your home, it was almost like working from home was a, a bad thing, a taboo. Yeah. You, know, you want to be perceived, especially as a lawyer, you're in the office, you're grinding it out. Uh, God forbid you have a life and you have kids or a barking dog or, or a mailman that, you know, comes by or a, a, a gardener that's blowing the leaves out. <laughs> All these things that are background noise were in the old days, we would try to, sh you know, put the mute button on or pretend like we're not really living a life. Now it's become accepted and everyone's just sort of like, hey, 
kids could come running by. You know, we, we had one of our associates, you know, the baby's crying, they need a diaper change, they got to step out. It, it just brings everybody together on a whole different human level. And I think we've grown to respect and appreciate even more who we are as individuals. I never, ever thought about the humanization factor of Zoom with regard to the workplace. And you just blew my mind, man. <laughs> it's so yeah. true. I now know which of my colleagues have cats and right. love them dearly. And I never knew that or never even wanted to ask the question before. But I like that I know that. <laughs> no, and what's interesting is, is this has gone along. Um, I've seen a couple of things happen. I've seen people have more empathy, uh, more consideration of their fellow man. Uh, I've, I've seen people um, actually appreciate each other's time a little bit more. And, and ironically, I have to say this, there was an initial shock in terms of productivity. Yeah. But we've tracked the last couple of weeks. Our productivity is on par with where it was in normal times. Wow. <laughs> and in, in, in some respects, people are getting more efficient and productive because they have to be more balanced. I mean, my mom always used to say to me, a busy kid is a good kid. Hmm. You know, you don't have enough time to get into trouble. You don't have idle time. And, and I think what's happened is we all have to value our time a little bit differently now. Yeah. Uh, and even though we may not be getting in the car and commuting, uh, hmm. even though we may not be sitting in traffic, I think we all just sort of appreciate things more. And so instead of having those, those distractions and things that got in the way, we're able to actually focus on work. Hmm. Uh, and, and then physically and maybe mentally turn it off and transition to another task. Mm-hmm. And what we do here is, you know, I have, I have two younger children here in second and fifth grade and my wife and I have had to become teachers. Um, I have some teaching experience, so it's a little bit easier for me, but, but she's in a whole different world of having to work and balance her requirements for her job. And, and um, you know, we have to take on other things, which means that the time that we have for our real work is more precious and therefore we need to be more productive. Uh, so I think that's part of the process as well, that, that you start looking for maybe unintended benefit or, or potential consequences of, of this horrible thing that we're going through. Uh, another side of it is learning to be more productive uh, and value our time more. So, so Jim, let me step back because uh, you said something earlier uh, that was just, it was beautiful. That uh, essentially we have, by default, become more, have a greater level of intimacy in knowing our own employees and our, those that represent the firm in ways that you didn't know before. And so I'm going to, in going back, you know, prior to this crisis, I believe that we were already in crises. I mean, we were companies large and small, were all going through transformation. They were all trying to learn how to better serve a much more informed and uh, knowledgeable individual. They were wanting to, uh, they were having to think about new ways of doing things as the world became much more technologically savvy and there was a greater need to best uh, serve individual needs given the mass variances of people, everybody had more opinions. And so standardization was, uh, was really fighting the fight against personalization. So here we are in the midst of the, the, the biggest crisis in modern history. And we've in many respects been forced to, to take action 
on those things that we were wanting to do in the past or in the most recent past, but we're never given the priority or urgency because we were out to find the next transaction. And I'm not saying that that's what you've done or your firm, but in general, that was the, the common mindset. So here we are, Jim. Are there any things in particular? And, 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 I, and I want to preface this by saying you're in, a, you're in an industry, the practice of law, that respectfully has been dealing with the limitations of standardization for a long time. I mean, what you just in, described to me in terms of how you're getting to know your people better, you wouldn't even think that you're in, uh, in the practice of law. I would think that you were in a different type of business. Where I'm going at is, what is it that you were trying to change before COVID-19 that has changed? And where do you see some of the silver lining in the practice of law moving forward, given that we've had to force ourselves to change? There, there are a number of areas and um, it, it's been interesting. Um, I always thought that our firm was good at understanding our clients. Um, and at, at base level, uh, the practice of law in its various forms is about solving problems. And, and in a real sense, what you do is you take other people's problems and you make them your own. <laughs> which on some levels is a sick existence, but if you, if you assume that premise of, of what we do, um, in this day and age, these problems are more acute. Uh, they're more personal. It, it isn't just about money. In some respects, it's about survival. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's very, very personal when, when you have a client that contacts you and says, I just had to lay off a thousand people and close 16 locations because we're ordered not to have business right now. And how do we make it through this? And, and for me, it was always about not just dealing with the bank or the landlord or the lawsuit that may have come their way. It was about really understanding as, as people who run these organizations, what is it that you want to accomplish? Hmm. And that discussion and narrative has completely changed in the last couple of weeks because it's not just about accomplishing some business objective where you're trying to grow or establish a competitive edge or whatever it might be. You're not trying to survive. And, and it's been quite humbling for these people who were thriving just six weeks ago. Hmm. Uh, examples where their business was valued at hundreds of millions of dollars and being ready to potentially exit to now we're out of business. We have no cash flow. What do we do? Hmm. Now, what I feel sort of fortunate about in terms of my particular practice is that I deal with this. This is what I deal with in good times or bad. It's taking those problems and solving them and helping people navigate them. So I felt actually very equipped from my prior practice to be able to help people in this situation. And in some respects, uh, my job is a little easier than it was because I don't have to explain why hmm. my client's in trouble. Everybody knows why. Okay. And, and, and then that's where it becomes interesting is to watch the mindset of people in this entire problem. Because it, it really is going to take the entire community of, of a, a particular business or even the world to to recognize how we get out of this. Everyone has to be patient and everyone has to understand that this is a crisis, but it will pass. We're going to have to hit the pause button. We're going to have to recognize that the world is going to be different for 30, 60, 90, who knows how many days. And if everyone recognizes that and everyone understands that there is a way to come back 
and allow businesses to succeed and, and, in, and not just survive, but thrive. Um, if everyone takes that mindset, then, then frankly, we'll all get through this a lot easier. And I'm seeing that on a daily basis. And I'm, I'm trying now. And so the, so the test is, hmm. I've now approached lenders, landlords, vendors, and saying, look, I, I sent 15 letters out this morning for a client. Everyone has to sit tight for 90 days. And when we reopen, we can start talking about how we're going to pay you. But I can't pay you today. We have no money. We're, we're literally out of business. But if you accept the fact that this was a business that just six weeks ago was doing millions and millions in revenue, you have to have faith that we'll be there again. Now, if everyone can buy into that, it'll make it a lot easier. But everyone's under their own pressure. Because every landlord I talk to says, hey, wait a minute. I got to get the rent to pay my bills. Well, their creditors are going to have to sit tight. And, and this all sort of goes with the, the, the global approach here. Everyone has to realize we're in this together. And if they do, frankly, my job will be easier. My job might become somewhat obsolete because you won't need me to go navigate these, these waters. You'll just understand and do it. Um, but, but it's one example, if you will, of the cultural mind shift that has to happen in order for all of us to get through this. I'm thinking that we're better at this than we think. That, that our biological and neurological trajectory that led us to right now, to this moment and this day, our species and those that came before it have evolved to literally be more interdependent. The success comes through our, interdepen inter our, our interdependence. It wasn't that all these individual species emerged one by one. It's like species, not individuals emerged, right? And so um, I think we're naturally inclined towards this but it seems like the maybe and Glenn, I'd love to hear your thought on this. How did how does the 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 age of standardization? How did that literally turn us against our biological uh, proclivity towards connection and interdependence? Yeah, I think what standardization did, and we've talked about this, uh, it was defined by one thing: efficiency. And no matter what it took, uh, it didn't matter. We had to become more efficient. And I think what we're learning is that, uh, that having prescribed people to think a certain way, to define people in certain ways, was probably the most ignorant thing we could have ever done. Because... Efficiency isn't yeah. resilient during times like this, and, we've, and that's proven to be true. And it's not that standardization is all bad, but what we've learned is that standardization never evolved, and it didn't evolve as strategically as it could have. And, but what that required was changing behaviors of humans that were so locked in to do things a certain way, taking the time to recalibrate their thinking, taking the time to reinvent oneself was just too much time that was going to disrupt all the benefits of efficiency. Yeah. And, and for many leaders, I will tell you that that didn't matter because for them, they found a zone that gave them more power. They found a zone that gave them the illusion of what their importance 
was to other people. And in many respects, you can see a, a certain level of equality playing out in this crisis. I mean, those, the, the most powerful dignitaries are getting uh, the crises. We're seeing Tom Hanks getting the crises. We're all seeing that in the end, because we are all individuals, we are much more alike than we think we are, especially during times of crises. So I'm just sharing this because standardization has made us realize that it has limited us as individuals. And when you go back to the things that Jim is talking about, uh, he is making it very clear that we don't want to be defined by what others think we should be. And, you know, what Jim has also said is that we're also discovering new capacities in individuals that we never even thought were there. And I think that this is, in many respects, let's respect COVID for a moment in all of, the, in all of those that have been, um, that have experienced tremendous pain because of it. But I think this is a, a, not this COVID, but this moment is a moment that I think many have, uh, of us have been waiting for, a forced reinvention of who we want to be and based upon the things that we really believe in. And I think in the past, many people uh, felt that they were doing things that they didn't really believe in. And to Jim's point, you know, this notion, I've got to tell you, Jim, you have for me, help me better understand when you say we're all in this together. Your perspective just gave me these layers upon layers of understanding of just to your point, Scott, the interdependence that we all really that we all really have. And, and again, maybe this is out of line, Jim. Maybe it doesn't make any sense, but let me throw this at you. <laughs> you know, it used to be that if you were rich and had the money to get the best loss, the, the best lawyers, you're in fate. The probability was that you were probably going to win. Not always, but the probability. And in what I'm hearing from you, and maybe I'm misunderstanding, and give it clarity, please, is that there are so many interdependencies now uh, to get money, to get support. Uh, in other words, it's as if the, the supply or the value chain is so broken that no one has a real edge now. Give me perspective of what I'm really trying to ask here, Jim. No, I, I think you're right. Um, interesting. Uh, the area of the law that is the most concerned about this crisis is the litigation realm. Mm. Um, there have been uh, scholars commenting already and practitioners speaking and blogging about that uh, the litigation end is what's really going to dry up. And so those law firms that are dependent upon litigation um, are going to, to struggle because in a crisis, people aren't going to fight because why are we fighting when we have to deal with survival? And it's not just about, you know, one area of practice thriving and another doesn't, but I, I, I've always believed in, and, and again, going back to your earlier question about what are you doing differently or how are you approaching things differently? I've always approached things from the perspective that litigation's inefficient. And to your point, it's a rich man's game. If you can afford an expensive lawyer and bear down your opponent and, and win, you probably will. Um, 
but that's inefficient uh, to solve the problem, which mm-hmm. is what's the dispute? Let's, let's come up with a compromise and move forward. Compromise has to happen now. Um, I settled a case uh, two weeks ago. Um, we were fighting over a million and a half dollars. It came up in the context of a bankruptcy case. And at the inception of the, of the dispute, which was in the beginning of March, the other side was, you know, we, we want to offer you 50 grand. And then right before the hearing, they goosed their offer to 100 grand. And then we had the hearing and then it was 200 grand. And after the hearing was, was literally the day that, that California issued the stay-at-home order and the mm. world changed. Yeah. Um, the other side changed their perspective. And I'm not kidding, within 48 hours, we settled that case with a straight split the baby 50-50 on the dollar. And I don't know that that was coincidental. I think it was purely because recognizing. And, and the judge actually made the comment at the hearing before we settled the case. She said, I, I hope you can all go out there and figure this out because it's a different world we're living in. And, and if you think of that mindset, and then you talk, start talking about the guys that make money over the fight, the litigators, right? They're going to be put out of a job because people are going to be more realistic about what it's going to take to resolve these disputes. And to your point about the connectivity with everybody, um, my practice has always been about uh, recognizing what's good for everybody. I have to build consensus among a bunch of conflicting parties. That is going to be more important than ever in this situation because we are now just seeing the beginnings of the financial and economic implications of this crisis. This is going to last for 12, 24, maybe 36 months. It's not going to be easy to get out of this because there are certain businesses that are simply just not going to survive. Yeah. Um, and if the people who are dependent on those businesses don't realize it, and, and it's a weird thing because I, I, I want to digress for a second. Scott, you'll appreciate this. Yeah. So I'm watching, uh, you know, as, you, as you, you, you spin through Netflix now and you're finding things you haven't watched before. I was looking at those earth documentaries and, and oh, there was one about, you know, the, the, the frozen earth and Antarctica and the Arctic. And, you know, it's the polar bear struggles because the seals can't make it to land because the ice sheet is smaller and, and there's just nowhere to walk. Right. Yeah. The penguins and the, and the, and the sea lions and the whales all are independent on each other. Yeah. It's sad to see a baby seal get eaten by a whale, but it's part of the ecosystem and what, what works. I, I'm, I'm walking on the beach a couple days ago at a proper distance with masks on and uh, down in Newport beach, uh, all these seagulls and pigeons, <laughs> they're struggling because there's no one on the beach. They, they live off the trash and the things that are there in, in a similar way in business. Um, the, you have to look at the big, big picture. It's not just the restaurant. Yeah. And, and it goes back, I'll digress again. When I, I taught a class by junior achievement about how an economy starts and they start these lessons in junior achievement in kindergarten. Yeah. We talk about a quarter. Guy gets a quarter from his piggy bank and he goes and he buys a piece of candy. The guy at the candy store takes that quarter in his cash register and then he goes and deposits at the bank. The bank takes that money and they make a loan to the dry cleaner and the dry cleaner buy some new equipment. The guy who bought the equipment from, he takes his business, he can build more equipment and hire 10 more people. So that quarter leads to all these interdependencies. And that lesson from Junior Achievement has been around for almost 50 years. But here we are today recognizing that when you see a restaurant closed on the corner, what does that mean for the entire community? Once that awareness is there and we all take a step out of ourselves and look at that, Hmm. I think we're going to be in a much better position to get through this thing. Wow, man. Anyway, <laughs> love it. <laughs> you went from penguins to closing restaurants. That's brilliant. Yeah. 
Sorry, my mind scatters sometimes. No, I love it. I love it. This is exactly where we wanted, Jim. This is this is uh you know, I I'm pausing because I'm I I want the audience to just absorb what you just said and yeah. how and how easy it is to get distracted to not be in touch with the realities of how the world works and yeah. The interdependencies that we that we have that in many cases we've ignored, and you know after hearing a story like that, you often wonder how it is how is it that we uh, prior to this crisis uh, were such a divided country, such a divided world, and so much hate and anger when nobody's agenda uh, can't be accomplished uh, truly all the way through to the end uh, without the interdependence of so many people that impact so many other people. I mean, it's uh, to go back and examine where the chain breaks and why it breaks uh, uh, and, and how we got to this point, I think would be something to look at potentially in the future. But uh, thanks for sharing that perspective, Jim. We're going to shift gears and, and kind of talk a little bit about the future. Um, so w- one of the things that uh, Scott has brought up, and I'm going to ask him to, to just give you a little debrief uh, so you can react to it, is his concern about, well, as we move to the other side of this crisis, w- whatever that means, we, we don't know enough yet. Uh, we've got some uh, indicators of what it might look like. But one of his concerns is that cognitive uh, diversity is going to get in the way. Uh, let me explain that we as humans have this ability uh, to think and be inventive, but we're not very good at processing uh, new ways of thinking and then acting on it. And then in business terms, operationalizing it. Uh, So Scott, can you again, go deeper into what that means and what some of the potential risks are moving forward? Because I like Jim to react to that uh, through the lens of what he sees moving forward. Yeah, and now correct me if I'm wrong, Glenn, but uh, in terms of interpreting where you're going with that, but you know, ultimately, I I definitely don't fear that cognitive diversity will get in the way. I actually am um, hopeful that cognitive diversity is what's going to bring us. I'm uh, sorry, the lack of cognitive. Okay, diversity. good, because I was sorry, like the lack of cognitive. I thought you were throwing me for a real spinner there, my friend. No, no, no. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's all right, but yeah, that's exactly it. But I think um, so. So where we're going here is back to just. Um, Essentially, going back to Jim's point, uh, you know, where are we going back to? Where are we going to? Um, and what Jim keeps coming back to is interdependence, interdependence, interdependence. And we keep putting a lot of cool layers around that to show how that will show itself up in a law firm versus a restaurant versus an iceberg with a penguin. But the, the cool thing that I can see going on here is that um, this interdependence, it's literally what we're talking about when we're talking about cognitive diversity. Um, we are at a moment, an opportunistic moment, where we can finally replace the idea of performative surface level diversity, um, which can very, uh, in a very insidious way, can make us feel that we're being inclusive and that we have sort of, we're doing our due diligence at being interconnected, when the very fact of the matter is we're doing everything possible to disconnect, right? And so my thought would be this, um, with this interconnectivity, 
interconnectivity is specifically a, ref, uh, a reflection of the way that we honor and appreciate and value, and to use your word from before, operationalize difference. Hmm. Right? Cognitive diversity, by, by, by recognizing cognitive diversity, um, that's our adaptation. Um, wow, I would never do that, but that works a little bit better than I thought. My idea, you know, I'm going to do that, or I'm going to do that, but I'm going to change it like this. That's who humans are. We're pioneers in terms of, of adaptation. That's why we're still around after all these uh, millions of years, uh, even though we've changed our, our apparatus, you know, just like the iPhone, we go from one to two, and now we're homo sapien. But bottom line, we did that because we adapted just like technology adapted. And for me to kind of bring this full circle and, and to hear Jim's words on this, um, I'm thinking that I just have, my, in my mind, I'm contradicting myself to a bigger point, And that is, we are returning to normal. We keep saying that we're not returning to normal. But the normal we think we're not returning to was not normal. <laughs> that was the age of personalization or of standardization. That was an age in which we were ignoring our humanity. If we want efficiency simply for the sake of being efficient, well, we're doing the job of the robots that we created. If we want innovation to create, uh, to create efficiency, if we want innovation to create new normals or to go back to old normals, we need cognitive diversity. We need difference of opinion. We need difference of vision and we need difference of life experience. And and the old way that we tried to do that by check boxes of different types of skin color and religion was a good shorthand for the time being. But what we're recognizing now is that those same people with different skin color, religions, and worldviews actually all went to the same business school. <laughs> right? right? There isn't cognitive diversity. And so I'll stop this rant right now. But ultimately, the final point would be I see that we're returning to the old normal. And the old normal is one that predated standardization, and it definitely focused on one thing, and that's Jim's thing, and that's interconnectedness. Well, the cool thing about it, Scott, is that when you talk about the old normal, um, from a societal level, we didn't necessarily have the tools to exploit the value and the power of that difference instead of differences. But today, example, we're sitting here through technology communicating with one another. We have tools that can exploit and, and take advantage of those differences like never before we've seen in humankind. Yeah. So um, it's an interesting time. I, I, you know, I'm sure we all get philosophical, spiritual, religious at, at these moments and you wonder if there's a God thing going on. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Glenn, you talk about, you know, you, you launched this movement of personalization. Um, writing your book, the articles, uh, the summit, and, and carrying forth. Um, this seems to be happening for a reason, um, because we had, I think, become lost in, in standardization. Um, and now we're all as human beings having to adapt. And, and what you find interesting as you watch this play out on a, on a large scale is, is governments and businesses um, are struggling with how to change and, and, and they're being forced to, Glenn, to your earlier point, we're being forced to recognize uh, the power of the individual. And, and, and more fundamentally, it's a survival thing now, because if we don't recognize our differences hmm. and bring them all to the table, we're gonna struggle uh, 
getting through this thing. And it's, it becomes then simple things, right? You know, you're going to have to deal with, well, are there going to be special rules in place for certain kinds of people? Are we going to have to allow things to happen differently, not on a standardized level? There's not going to be a one size fits all solution to this crisis. And it's going to come down to hopefully um, the thought process that, that is driving your movement, Glenn, and, and what we're all working on in this instance. And now that we have to, based on the crisis that we're facing, will our leaders, both business and, and governmental, uh, recognize um, the, the need to continue down a path of personalization to get through this thing. Um, it seems like in certain you know, circles that that, that mindset is there. Um, and it's, it's funny to watch it play out almost on a daily basis where there's this friction, you know, yeah. that plays out on the news media and, and you're watching this thing happen. I mean, it's, you know, governors having to come together uh, with the federal government, recognizing, you know, what's the best play, public health officials having different viewpoints on this, um, all trying to work in their own way towards a solution. Um, but you've got a lot of talent and you've never had an ability to tap it like we do now. Yes, so, exactly. Um, it gives me hope. It gives me confidence uh, and a level of optimism. Um, you know, I, I don't know that you envision a public health crisis, you know, being a catalyst towards your, your movement that you've started here. Uh, but it certainly isn't hurting things. I, I think it's underscoring a lot of the issues that you've identified and the solutions that you've, you've started to propose. Thank, thank you, Jim. First of all, it's our movement. We're all in this together. <laughs> I, I think I just... I think I may have just earned some serendipity, hint, hint. But the, the, the point is that, uh, that you bring, I, I love this notion that difference is now a survival mechanism. And I, I, I agree with you, Jim, that, you know, the talent that we are discovering and maybe we're all feeling a little bit guilty that we didn't discover it, discover it earlier. But what we're realizing, it's being discovered because of this point. Personalization spooks standardization. And when threatened, standardization fights back hard. What we're witnessing in the media and around the world is those that are allowing personalization to influence new standards for the future. But we're also witnessing how those that were born and believe in the ideologies behind standardization, they're fighting for their lives, but they're fighting for their lives in a different way. In other words, they're fighting for their relevance. They're fighting for their power. They're fighting for things that quite candidly don't matter as much anymore. Right. And we're discovering, as you have eloquently pointed out throughout this call, that our greater appreciation for the front line, for the people that actually get their hands dirty and do the work, those are the ones that have more influence today than ever before. And so I, I feel that we're all witnessing uh, this turnaround of how it's no longer going to be about what you know, but what you do with what you know. And there's a lot of people out there that may not have the title, may not have the credential, but boy, are they taking action 
on what they know to be part of the solution. Yeah, for sure. Um, the other thing I would, as you said, that sort of macro analysis of the, the struggle between personalization and standardization, um, if you really stop and think about it, um, we've basically stopped the world economically, socially, uh, you know, hopefully not culturally, but it's certainly being impacted to, relatively speaking, protect a very small number of people. Yes. If you stop and think about the number of cases, the number of deaths, while tragic in comparison to the world population is really small. But I think what's being recognized by the people making the decisions to ultimately impose these restrictions on us is that we have to protect everybody, even the most vulnerable and at risk, because those people have a value in our society. Yes. Um, on every level. The value and, of a society is how we protect those very people, right, Jim? Right. And, and it's interesting that the, the states that have had these, in, these restrictions imposed more recently are fighting it. You know, you read the other day or yesterday about the protests in Michigan. Um, there's, I, I'm, I'm just happy about the fact that there seems to be a recognition among the people making these decisions that, no, you, you, you can't just sacrifice a few hundred thousand people for hundreds of millions more or billions more. Because if you do that, um, it's not just a, a human issue, it's an economic issue, it's a societal issue, and it's a we can do better issue. Um, because there is this mentality that is, is evolving and, and if you watch certain outlets, they seem to promote it. The economy and, and economic success are more important in the near term, let's, let's be focused on, on what's right in front of us as opposed to looking at the big picture, but the big picture is winning. And I think, Glenn, the big picture, and Scott recognizes the value of the individual. Um, and, and maybe that's a, a weird recognition of, of what we're talking about here. Um, and, and standardization is losing out uh, as, as this thing unfolds. Jim, it, it sounds to me that, uh, I mean, you, you put this into my head, so I'm giving you all the credit here because it sounds to me that one of the sort of paths forward here um, about so-called flattening the curve of COVID, um, that really that's kind of in, an incidental sidestep that really what we need to do to flatten the COVID curve is to flatten the leadership curve. Right. And if we flatten leadership into a more inclusive approach, in which the voices of those whose hands are literally the most worn and dirtiest and most active, um, we very well might create uh, a, new, a new normal, or at least what I'm starting to posit as an old normal, um, of interconnectedness that we weren't really allowing ourselves to see. We were allowing ourselves to see this illusion of a place where if you worked hard enough and were sort of quick enough on your feet with innovation, you might be able to step out of your human condition and not be interdependent. You can be independent, which is what you're supposed to be. Right. When in fact, that's the worst possible advice we could ever give a young person today is to go out and be an independent person, right? right? Be yep. an independent person. And I'll close my thought by sending something right back to both of you. This to me, the way that Jim's been phrasing it, sounds like a perfect Hollywood pitch movie, right? Imagine if, all of a sudden, by pressing this magic button, the entire world must stop and take a two-month pause. 
No major economic activity, no new initiatives, no gathering of more than five people, depending on your state. So the deal is, if it's a Hollywood movie, there's an ending. Right. And I think it could go to the horror stocks, horror story genre, or it could go to the uplift Sunday late afternoon movie. And I'm just curious, what's the end of this great, great Hollywood pitch? Somebody mm -hmm. press the button. Everything no, right. tossed. What happens next? Yeah, that reminds me of one of my favorite movies, The Player. Uh, Tim uh -huh. Robbins. Yeah, right, right. No happy endings. No happy endings. <laughs> and of course, in the end, the Hollywood producers won out and Julia Roberts got saved from the gas chamber by Bruce Lewis. It's a happy ending. Um, but yeah, no, there's a happy ending here. I, I think there's a very happy ending that, that, that I think, um, you know, things happen for a reason. Uh, whatever you believe in, uh, it's causing us to stop, pause, reflect, get a little bit more basic. Um, we needed it. I mean, if you look at the, where we were headed, um, business and society and in life, it, it, things were going in a direction that were too, um, too fast. Uh, right. They were too superficial, too materialistic. And I, you know, I, I've been guilty of it just like anybody else. And I think every once in a while, you get a kick in the pants and you, you realize what's important. And coming out of this, there's no way people aren't going to value the simple things that we used to take for granted. Yeah. That's a good thing. And I think if we can learn additional lessons like we're talking about here and, and business leaders and government leaders and individuals can realize what opportunities we have. Um, it's not just that the world will be a better place. I think that we'll all be better people for it. And, and I'm already feeling that that opportunity is there. And, and by the way, the alternative really sucks because if you choose to go down a path to make it a horror story and be miserable and see the, the bad side of this and the half empty and all that, um, you're going to be in a much worse place. But if you embrace the opportunity that's presented by this, the silver lining, whatever you want to call it, um, I, I think that's going to allow us to get through it and get through it very well. Jim, what a great way to close the program. You obviously know my answer to that question, Scott, is... <laughs> I think we're going to be heading into a much more uh, into greater state of uh, valuing individual leading in personalization. And I think what, what we're going to see is the demise of ruling by standardization. Um, but Jim, I can't uh, thank you enough. Boy, what a powerful conversation. Uh, it's hard to believe how, how much time went by, but uh, it just tells you just how much um, there is to think about how much we all have to offer in the conversation. And um, as, as you've said, and as I have felt about you, Jim, uh, you're a tremendous community leader. Uh, interdependence and interconnectedness has always been a part of your central ethos. And thank you for enlightening both Scott and I today, because uh, I think this uh, message is going to serve audience as well as they heal, as they rebound, and as they find the motivation um, to, to really bounce back and, and move forward. So thanks again uh, for your time, Jim. We really, really appreciate it. You guys are most welcome and thank you for the opportunity. And uh, we're all just getting along here, right? That's it. That's all we're doing. Thanks again, Jim. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, 
visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.